Hello there, and thanks for discovering this podcast. My name is Bryn Burney, and I'm one of the hosts and creators of this show that is now called Or We Could Change. We recorded our first three episodes back in 2021 and 2022. We intended on presenting them to you closer to that time. The climate crisis is an overwhelming and nebulous topic to explore, which is why we wanted to tackle it. But it's also why it's taken us so long to figure this out. Our goal has always been to take you, the audience, along with us while we learn together how to engage with this topic and issue. It's time to officially invite you into our process. Keep in mind, some of the news and science we reference is two years old. And this topic has heated up significantly since then. You'll also pick up on a couple of alt titles for the podcast we considered along the way. All that being said, I humbly present our first episode. Wildfires, floods, storms, and droughts. We're seeing the evidence every day now. We can't deny that global warming is a crisis. We can keep going with business as usual, or we can actually start to fix it. We're trying to figure out how to tell the story of global warming so that it inspires big actions that meet the moment. We can keep changing the climate, or we could change. We're confronting the climate crisis through discussion, research, interviews, and storytelling. We're not just going to talk about climate. We're going to learn how to talk about climate in a way that lights a fire under our collective ass. We're taking you along with us because no matter who you are, the big issues in the world that are pissing you off right now are related to the climate crisis somehow. We're trying to tell the story of the climate crisis in a way that makes this accessible and gets people to recognize that we need to respond to this crisis in a manner that is appropriate for the speed and severity of the problem. So we're going to start by telling you a bit about ourselves and why we're doing this. We're going to tell you what our long-term goals with this project are and how we plan to learn and adapt along the way. Each episode after our little intro and personal status report, uh, we'll just head right into a deep dive topic. The deep dive today, we're going to focus on the theme of faster than expected, sooner than expected. The unfortunate thought that a lot of the bad things that we're talking about are going to happen faster and sooner than we expect. Then we'll talk about the next steps with our project. And we'll talk a little bit about the news, chat about a few headlines, some bad, some good. And finally, we'll tell you what we're going to talk about in the following episode. All right. So who the hell are we? Good question. I'll go first. My name's Aaron, and I'm one of the three co-hosts of this show. So my background, a little bit about me, I am a film director. I have a whole bunch of varied experience in both fiction and documentary, and I really like to tell stories with some sort of social or political theme, but often contained in a packaging of humor or satire, or maybe documentaries that bring people into a big topic through lots of smaller stories. Some of my Hobbies on the side include things like cooking, baking, plants and gardening, travel, photography, and running. And why are hobbies important? Because eventually we're going to be talking a little bit about how our lives are going to be changing or some of the changes we may need to make as a result of the climate crisis. So knowing how that affects each of us as an individual is also part of the story. 
That's an excellent point, Darren. Uh, so I'm Bryn. I am one of the other co-hosts of Climate Changes Everything. I'm a Toronto-based writer. Um, I guess I fancy myself a storyteller. I work in a bunch of mediums, including screenwriting, um, podcasting most recently, and I do some work in blogging and marketing and all of the, the fun things that they use writers for these days. I've worked in so many different sectors and industries. I've straddled both the creative and corporate worlds, so I might have an interesting perspective on a lot of these topics. I grew up in a blue-collar Southern Ontario community, but I've called Toronto my home for more than a decade. And I'm Ali. I'm an engineer and scientist by training. I spend a lot of time focusing on complex socio-technical systems. So thinking about the big picture, how everything fits together, and also I'm pretty comfortable doing deep dives into various types of science. So I've, I've considered myself pretty knowledgeable about climate, or I thought I'd considered myself pretty knowledgeable about climate up until about 2019. I knew things were bad, I didn't realize how bad, and I actually had a friend who was really worried about near-term human extinction, and she told me about that, and this is, this is the concept. This is the idea that humanity will be wiped out within the next 10 to 20 years. And I still distinctly remember the conversation I had with my friends. And I sort of laughed it off. I was, I was pretty dismissive of this concept and I felt pretty bad about it. And I remember, okay, you know what? I'm a scientist. Well, I'll dig into the science and I'll show my friend that this is not a serious concern. I planned another hangout with her where we would go through the science together. And I remember as we were going to the, through the science, it was a series of continual oh shit moments. Now, to summarize, I don't think the evidence points that there is a high risk of near-term human extinction. If it's on, it's sort of on the same level of an asteroid hitting the planet. It's there, but it's minute. What is on the table, though, it is on the table for the end of the century. It's still a low probability, but it's in the conversation. And so this led me to dig deeper into, science, into the science. I recruited a lot of my closer friends, and I had a bit of a surreal moment when this dawned on me. And the future I thought I was going to live sort of vanished in an instant. I thought I would get to live in a Star Trek type future. And now I'm wondering if we're going to end up with a Mad Max type future in our lifetimes. <laughs> a chilling vision of things to come. Okay, so Ali, how did that then lead you into climate activism? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of took me off the sidelines where I thought I was watching a slow moving car crash coming to, okay, I need to do something about that. So I did a deep dive into the climate science. Um, I looked at the primary material um, and I then looked at, okay, what are, who's active? Who's doing something in the city? We're in Toronto. And I joined a couple of groups and I decided I need to do something about it. And so my main focus, I'm really good at research and I'm really good at synthesizing that research and then saying it in an accessible manner. So I put together a presentation that I was going around the city um, and telling people sort of how bad things are. The takeaway of the presentation was that if anything else, we need to act with action that is commensurate with the urgency and immediacy of the problem that we face. And eventually that led me to um, connect with Aaron and Bryn, um, who I think they're too modest. Um, they are award-winning filmmakers and storytellers. And I was really lucky that they were interested in doing a project with me. And that's what brought us to here. Well, thank you, Ali. Uh, you know, I have to say, like your presentation <laughs> is really the thing that kicked all of this off for us. I remember it was during the like the height of 
the pandemic when, you know, we first started chatting about all of this and Aaron and I kind of had this like sense of like urgency of wanting to, you know, do something that was important and use the skills that we have as as storytellers to really um, get involved. As far as like me and my journey and all of this, um, as I've said, I'm a writer um, and I'm from a smaller community and basically a very blue collar community that was very run by manufacturing. I guess I could say that I've always had an interest in this subject, but I haven't quite been moved into action in the same way until recently. When I really think about it, I can trace my interest in and anxiety around the climate crisis back to the early 90s as a young kid in a school assembly. So I have this like very vivid memory of being in a school assembly on what was probably like an Earth Day presentation or something like that. Um, the focus would have been at that time uh, the ozone layer or something because that was like the hot <laughs> topic in terms of how we're impacting the environment. But I can remember like watching some video. I don't remember the exact content but I remember being in this like gymnasium full of other kids and watching this video about pollution and the ozone layer and climate change and, you know, having this weird false association with the tears are not enough music video, which, by the way, was not at all about climate or about the environment. But for some reason, I had this association with it. But I digress. Um, I can relate everything to pop culture. So that's kind of where, you know, that memory came from. Anyway, after this assembly, I lost sleep for several days over the content. I told my parents that the world was going to end soon and that we were, you know, we really had to do something. Um, I channeled these fears into faithfully watching Captain Planet, championing recycling, and later raising awareness around water conservation in school and work initiatives. I've always cared about the climate crisis and engaged with it, but more in sort of a warm and fuzzy kind of way. But it wasn't until 2020 that my reactions to this issue heated up, you could say. <laughs> Ali shared his journey into activism and his presentation with us, as I mentioned. I sort of became that panicked kid in the gymnasium once again. This time, I didn't have my parents to calm me down and reassure me. I just had a set of alarming facts and a lot of time to mull them over. I'm grateful for this reactivation, and I'm ready to launch into learning and into action. My goal with the podcast here is to learn from both of you and ask questions and make weird connections that maybe the two of you wouldn't think of. I hope to normalize these conversations that we're having and inspire all of you out there to have them as well. Thanks, Bryn. Okay, so after Ali approached us to start talking about this documentary project, it was kind of fortuitous because I've done a lot of documentary work in the past and it's a long time since my last documentary project. Uh, I've done a very serious documentary before, but it was many years ago. It's called A People Uncounted, if anyone's interested to look it up. And for a long time, I've been wanting to do another documentary project on a subject that's very important, but with some sort of unique approach or angle where I feel like I could make a, a useful contribution and it could really make an impact and haven't really been able to land on the right project for a long time. 
So when Ali approached us with this concept, that started to trigger a lot of thoughts about how we could help tell this story. Uh, as it happens, Bryn and I, along with our other friend Barry, got into podcasting starting last year with what is actually quite a light and humorous, but highly analytical podcast about TV and pop culture. So we've become quite enamored with this medium and got to thinking about how we could apply this to a documentary project about the climate crisis. For me, I'm really interested in talking about the climate crisis in a few unique ways. For me, one thing that I think is really important with telling stories in documentary is asking the right questions rather than just doing a lot of work to find the right answers to perhaps more typical questions that everyone's asking. Also, I'm really interested in exploring collective action and systemic problems. I'm a lot less interested in focusing on the individual beyond how individuals have the ability to influence the collective. So for example, I care more that people vote for good leaders than what kind of car they buy or what kind of pants they buy although those things admittedly might help. Also, I'm really interested in focusing on systemic structural problems, entire industries, political movements, and the possibility for paradigm shifts, rather than naming and shaming individual people or leaders or corporations. I want to really step back and look at what we can be doing differently as a species. So maybe to, to tie it all together, for me, my main motivation is, I, I think we, we hit a point collectively, like as a society in 2019, where climate broke into the mainstream in terms of how serious it is. But I don't think people are getting the whole story. And like I said, from the, the talk that I had, I think the actions that we take really need to match the scale and immediacy of the emergency that we face. And I don't quite yet see that. There were some polls earlier this summer that got me sort of despairing because um, it, it showed that a lot of people in, in North America, at least and in Europe, get the fact that climate is real, but the solution space that we're exploring to me seems very worrisome. Things like geoengineering, things like still talking about 2050 as though we have all that time. So one of the main motivations I have is I would like to change the cultural zeitgeist. I would like to get people more on the same page. And then beyond that, I mean, there's still so much more to learn. And so I think collectively, we're all teaming up to learn about the climate crisis, how it connects or will soon connect with every other issue we and everyone else care about, and try to figure out how best to tell the story. With myself bringing some experience from science and activism, Bryn with storytelling and writing, and Aaron from documentary filmmaking. I mean, one of those things that really found was despairing about the polls is that people still prioritize the economy over yeah. averting the climate crisis. And like, I always think about who cares about the economy if there are no people or if like society's falling apart? What does that mean? And I don't think we're thinking about that through. Yeah, one thing that I've noticed lately is that on the one hand, thankfully, we've moved from the mainstream debate being is climate change happening. I feel like, you know, maybe with an inconvenient truth and there were some popular documentaries and stories that came out 15, 20 years ago. And it seems like back then there was still a lot of mainstream debate on is climate change happening at all? And then it shifted to okay, it's happening, but is it being caused by human activity? And so I'm happy that now it seems like, at least in the mainstream, people recognize that, yes, it's happening, and yes, it's at least largely caused by human activity. And it's, it's pretty fringy groups and people that are now claiming that that's not happening at all. Mm -hmm. However, 
yeah, it seems like in spite of that understanding that, yes, this is a problem and it's an urgent problem, there's still this massive disconnect, almost like a cognitive dissonance between that and making any changes whatsoever to the way we do business as a society. I'd just like to say, and this is more of a like quippy, smart aleck comment, but you know, you guys have been talking a lot about how, oh, we need to change the cultural zeitgeist. We need to change the economy. Hell, we managed to change the climate so we can change those things too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's where the room for optimism or at least the room for like, we can do it comes from. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Our behavior as a collective is what has caused this crisis. We were able to make that impact. It's a devastating impact, but we made it. So think about what we can do as a collective to reverse it. <laughs> That's a really good point. Agreed. One, one, one thing on that, just two more examples that I yeah. always think about. One, lobster. I, I like just in terms of cultural perceptions, right? Up until like, what, 50 years ago, lobster was food barely fit for prisoners mm -hmm. and poor people would eat it. And now it's a delicacy. And that's pure marketing, right? That's a cultural, uh, it's a social construct. Similarly with like pink being masculine in the 1800s. And now it's highly feminine. That's true. These are very changeable things. Always. This actually is a good way of explaining what I meant earlier when I talked about asking the right questions. And I think a lot of the way I'd like to see issues around climate framed is, but are the things that we're doing now the way we've always done it? Is right. this a necessity? Do we have to keep trying to find solutions looking through the framework that we're using today? Mm -hmm. You know, do we have to keep bringing up the same political ideologies that we've had since the 19th century? the same economic paradigms that we've had for two or 300 years? Or can we pose some of these questions like, does something have to be this way? And I actually think that the, the pandemic that we're all still living through has been something that has opened a lot of people's minds to questioning some things. and Questioning everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even a small example of that on the economic front would be that a few years ago, the idea of a universal basic income was seen as absurd by most people. And now, although it's not something that's been achieved yet anywhere that I know of, there are a lot of people talking about it as a pretty mainstream idea. And it now seems like something that realistically could happen in the, in the near to medium term. And not just because of the social good that it provides, but because of the economic stability that it provides. And so it's the kind of thing where it was taken as a given that, oh, like, but we couldn't afford that. And now there's, because of the pandemic, it's kind of like, but can we afford not to? Yeah. yeah. Different way of looking yeah. at the same situation. I think people, and this is mostly people on the internet, so take it for what it is, but a lot of people have been turning on capitalism during this time. Like there's a lot of like trendy like hashtags like tax the rich is like a big hashtag right now on all the platforms. So it is it's true. Like it has opened people's eyes up and has them like rethinking how we've been like living. And it's a good time to also be like, hey. Also, climate. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think like there's a lot to critique about capitalism. And I don't think the answer even is necessarily throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I think uh, another side of that often is people say, well, you're being hypocritical. 
For example, you're still driving a car or you're using a computer with parts from all over the world. And part of that is also like, yes, we're going to actually be living with hypocrisy for a while because our, these issues are systemic. We, yep. I didn't get to choose how the road system or the public transportation was built in my cities or in the country. And so there are a lot of decisions that sort of on the surface look personal, but they're really systemic. And right. I think our focus should be on the systemic angle and encouraging a paradigm shift in society as a whole. Yeah, so I think there has been a bit of a fixation on the small day-to-day -day choices that people can make. And I get that, you know, being able to make these choices might make people feel empowered and engaged with the subject. And if it keeps people in the conversation about the climate crisis, then that's great. But also these are window dressing solutions like, oh, I've switched my house to LED light bulbs, so I've done my part. Now that probably hasn't had any actual impact. But if it gets you thinking about how choices cause impact, then that's great. It keeps yeah. it it keeps it going. But focusing on these systemic problems are going to be really meaningful and important. And I do think it's it's critical that we not see those little changes as being an end game. My favorite example would be the whole thing of like, oh, we've switched to paper drinking straws. Somebody explained to me how a paper straw in a plastic cup is still okay. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And I, I think there's one other point to make about hypocrisy, which is it's often used as a charge dishonestly or out of ignorance. Because, I mean, how are you going to be effective unless you get around a city? Or how yeah. are you going to be effective unless you use digital technologies? And often that's framed as a bit of a false choice. We're not talking about going to a Stone Age society to save us from climate. That isn't the choice that we actually mm -hmm. face. And so we need to be careful when we hear people talk about hypocrisy as to sort of what is motivating that charge. And is it honest? And if it is honest, then we talk about the systemic issues and it's a natural way to take the conversation there. Yeah, and I just think there's a lot of nuance that needs to be kept in the conversation. If people, you know, express strong feelings and strong like passion about a given issue and someone else calls them a hypocrite because of X or Y they did now or maybe 10 years ago, like that is not productive. That's not helpful. So, yes, I really agree. We need to be careful with hypocrisy. And, you know, average folks who are trying very hard to learn and adapt and um, come into action need to not be so afraid and terrified of hypocrisy. There's one last thing I want to say on that, too, yeah. which is sometimes the charge is true. And, yeah, it, and it has merits. And, and the question is, and we can think of like a couple of examples where it's true and where it's not. So um, where it's true, uh, there was COP26 and all these rich people flew in on private jets. That's a fair charge of hypocrisy. Yeah. They don't mm -hmm. need to be flying around in private jets. Are, yeah. are they, can they not fly commercial? Can they not group together mm -hmm. and take one plane instead of eight different planes? That's so true. Right? That's a legitimate charge of hypocrisy. That would have taken like not that much coordination to figure out. <laughs> right, right. On the flip side, for example, David Suzuki has become a little bit more outspoken in the news and people are saying, oh, he has multiple houses. Therefore, he's being hypocritical. What does that mean? Why? Yeah. Right. Should he not have multiple houses? How is that like negatively impacting? He's a little bit more inefficient mm -hmm. in terms of it. Does that take away from the message that he's talking about? And then on the flip side, think about the actual companies that are bringing these charges forward. Right? right. That's where the true hypocrisy is. Well, it's deflecting, right? right? It's like they're trying to get the heat off of them. Yeah, so right. And we've seen a lot of the same tactic that tobacco companies used to use 
of basically muddying the waters so that there isn't clarity of what the real problem is with yeah. a lot of what about this? What about that? And it's just creating drama. Yeah. <laughs> it's creating drama and it's creating debate and it's creating uncertainty in areas where there's a lot of scientific consensus, actually. And yeah, to me, the most dangerous thing with the charges of hypocrisy are, OK, it still puts things in the framework of let's judge this big, important, critical issue based on the messenger. Mm -hmm. So regardless yeah. of how you feel about the person who is providing the information or saying the message, the most important thing right now is the content of the message. Right. A classic example of this was with the documentary An Inconvenient Truth. And people would say, okay, but Al Gore is flying all around the world in a private jet and he lives in a mansion and he has all this money and he's involved in all these business activities. And it's like, sure, okay. But regardless of how you feel about him, that does absolutely nothing to deny or confirm whether the content of what he's right. talking about is true or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a classical logical fallacy when you study logic, right? That's an ad hominem attack, right? It's not engaging with the subject matter. It's putting the focus on the messenger. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's think about this as the research and development or pre-production phase of a documentary, but in front of an audience. So this is the part of the process that normally just happens behind closed doors with the goal of one day, maybe years in the future, creating a finished product, a documentary where you tell the story. But instead, what we're doing is we're taking you, the listeners, we're taking our audience along the way as we research this, as we learn about the topic, mm -hmm. and as we hope to figure out how best to engage with these stories. Yeah, so I guess you're going to be witnessing, um, mostly Aaron and I, because we are newer to engaging in the issue, uh, you're going to be witnessing us learn in real time and and hopefully you'll kind of see a trajectory of us really un getting a deeper understanding of what is happening and what we need to do to make actual lasting change. So really what we're going to be doing is showing our work as we go along. So one small example of that is that when it comes time for us to interview someone, an expert on one of these topics, we're going to discuss what questions we're going to ask them. And then after the interview, we're going to discuss how it went. And we're going to challenge ourselves as to whether we asked all the right questions or what we might do next time, rather than simply present, well, here's what we managed to get out of the interview. And now we move on. We're actually going to be talking process as we go. And we're exploring the science of climate change, but we're also exploring the psychology of climate change, the narratives and storytelling and the human role in all of this. So we're actually exploring the act of telling these stories effectively. Actually, that's an interesting point there. Um, in terms of uh, we're talking about telling a story effectively, um, just over the past couple of years, there's been a growing recognition that climate change was actually introduced by Fred Luntz. He was the um, communications sort of head behind the George Bush campaign. And he introduced climate change to make it be a less scary idea back in the mid 2000s. And he popularized that term. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking on my shirt collar right now. <laughs> <laughs> now, he's, he's sort of um, switched um, a, a little bit. He's become a little bit more enlightened on this topic. And he, he says we should be calling it global heating. And a mm -hmm. number of news organizations around the word, world 
um, places like The Guardian um, in Canada, The Narwhal and The Taiyi, and even um, other places like Scientific American, they now refer to what's happening as the climate emergency or as the climate crisis. So thus we begin our series with a topic that explains why this is an immediate crisis. Ali, why don't you tell us about how this is happening faster than expected and sooner than expected? Sure. Um, And I think part of this also came out of when I was thinking about uh, the IPCC. So uh, there is something called the International Panel on Climate Change. And this is an organization that spans the entire globe. It's a cooperation. It's a, they do wonderful work. Let me be absolutely clear. They bring together tens of thousands of researchers and scientists, and they summarize uh, the research that they're doing. So they put together, uh, um, they refer to the Earth as the Earth system. And so this is a very complex thing. And when, whenever we model, we talk about modeling in science, we're always making an approximation of reality. Right. Like imagine you draw a picture of a house on a piece of paper. That's a model of a house. Right. But you never draw the plumbing. You never draw the wiring. Right. So it's an approximation of reality. And in science, you do this all the time. And there there's no one that can put load the entire Earth system in their head. You have tons of people all around the world focusing on little bits and pieces of this problem. And so what the IPCC does is it brings together expert um, lead authors and expert scientists from all across the world to put together these little pieces of the model to rebuild that big picture. And they use um, supercomputers to run these massive simulations of um, historical weather and future projections. And they're, they're doing like really detailed things. They model snowmelt. They model cloud formation. And depending on what model they're using, they have different resolutions. They're, they have like cubes about meter square cubed or 100 um, square clo- uh, meters. Um, they have d- various resolutions for the different elements of climate that they model. And keep in mind, these are supercomputers that take months to run, to run these projections, and then they have to evaluate them and come up with them. And so one of the things that you think about the Earth system and the climate system, it's also something that we don't have all the answers. It's a very quickly evolving field of science. And what that means is whenever you run that comp computer simulation, you have like a flash frozen set of assumptions about how the science is at that point in time, right? And so if there's new science, that means parts of your older science may be outdated. And so I've had this structural critique of the IPCC because they generate reports about every seven years. Um, But the, the previous one was in 2014. Um, and then the most recent one was just in October of 2021. And in that one, they update their, their models. And all of a sudden, temperatures that were supposed to be in the range of one to four degrees are now in the range of two to five degrees. So already you see in that case, it would be not faster or sooner, but worse. But if you think about the one to four, that sort of means the one to four is going to happen faster and sooner than the two in that two to five world. So why, why, how is this related to faster and sooner? A lot of the things that are predicted in those models are all of a sudden we're observing them happening in the real world sooner and faster than expected. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think I need to jump in here and get one thing clarified because I'm sure some of our listeners are (laughs) thinking this by now. What exactly is the difference between faster and sooner in this case? And can you give me some examples of each? 
Sure, sure. And I, I should be sort of clear. I didn't come up with this term. Uh, this term came from Reddit. Um, there's a number <laughs> of there's a number of subreddits uh, okay. that have been popularizing this term, and I think it works really well. Um, now, the distinction between faster and sooner. Um, imagine you have a cup of ice, um, like a, 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 a sorry, a glass of water with ice in it, and you have your ice mm-hmm. cubes. Those ice cubes have a rate of melt, right? So you can talk about how quickly they're melting. And if they're melting more quickly than you anticipated, that melt is faster. Okay. And then you can think about when they've completely melted. Right. And if you thought they were going to melt in two hours and they've melted in an hour, they've then melted sooner. So that's the distinction. Processes, rates of things can happen faster. And then when that phenomena, when that thing has happened, that could happen sooner. So sooner then is like almost... It's not the rate. It's like, oh, we weren't expecting this to happen. Now we were expecting it to happen in one month. Yeah, it's okay. it's um, sooner is when and yes. faster is how quickly. Oh, that's a good distinction. Okay, so it sounds like faster is talking about the process. And mm-hmm. yeah. that's something that's going to be understood best by someone who really digs into the science. But the sooner part, it seems like that connects with maybe particular tipping points or more observable markers where I'm just going to ask, because maybe this is an example, we hear about the disappearance of ice in the Arctic. So would that mean that the prediction as to when the Arctic will no longer have ice could happen sooner? Yeah. And, and so this is the part where the science gets a little bit trickier because Simply observing the real world phenomena, you then need to come up with interpretations and then check them against your models. So it's not as easy as just observing, oh, this happened. And so that means it's going to be sooner. But it means that perhaps the assumptions and what you ran has to be updated with the new data input. So the the Arctic is a good example. There, There are actually a number of things that happened in the summer of 2019 that were another oh shit moment for me. So, Mm, okay. (laughs) A a couple of examples. I'll buckle up for this. (laughs) Um, Arctic permafrost melt. So permafrost um, is a permanent frost. It's a layer of topsoil in the Arctic that is always uh, frozen and it never melts. And uh, people have noticed that as the world heats, as we get global heating, this is going to melt. And why is this important? Um, It's important for a number of reasons. Uh, Chief among them is there's a lot of carbon dioxide. That's one of the main greenhouse gases that is causing uh, global heating, that's going to get released. Right now, it's trapped in the frozen permafrost. And so what happened in 2019, people observed that the permafrost was rating at melts that were not supposed to happen until 2090. So the models that they had, so this is a process, right? It hasn't completely melted. So that's an example of faster, but the faster means it's likely going to be sooner. We don't know exactly how much sooner. Um, Similarly, in Greenland, um, there's a massive ice sheet there. And there, uh, the rate of melting, so how quickly the ice was melting, was happening at a rate that wasn't supposed to happen until 2070. That's about 50 years sooner. Hmm. And again, that's a faster. And and here again, we we can't jump to conclusions because that was only observed for a couple of days. And what you really need to do is take it over a period of time. And then the last one I'll talk about, which is another great example, another ice-based one, Uh, Again, in the summer of 2019, there was a scientific paper that said certain types of glaciers were melting 100 times faster than anyone predicted. 100 times faster. 100 times. Certain types, not all types of glaciers, and there are many different types of glaciers. But these are the ones that are on land. And so 
underneath them is um, a sort of a river of water as it melts. And we hadn't understood that process of how that water underneath affects it because they start sliding and all this stuff. And once people looked at that, and this is another example of our climate science or earth system science being incomplete and advancing all the time. And when people uh, studied and understood this phenomena a bit faster, they suddenly realized, oh, shoot, this means that this glacier is actually going to melt 100 times faster. This type of glacier, this class of glacier. So overall, you're saying in-depth reports, they need to be more frequent than seven years because of what happens in between that time. Because like, is it because they're so detailed and in-depth that it takes so long for the information to get out? Or like, what is the, the, like, what do we think is the solve for this? Like, do we need like daily updates? Like, is, should there be a Twitter feed or something? Like, I, I don't know. Well, it makes me think of the news cycle around the COVID pandemic because we're getting updates on absolutely anything and everything that happens on a minute to minute basis. So if you spend yeah. enough time on, news apps or on any social media platform, anytime anything happens anywhere, it's immediately right in your face. And, you know, a new variant comes out, even if very little is known about it yet. It's, I mean, it's straight into, you know, how bad could this be? Or is this something that should worry us? Is it not? And immediately it's analysis. It's, it's just spitting out every bit of information that anyone comes up with. But with climate, it does kind of feel like there are these watershed reports that happen occasionally. And in the interim, people kind of forget about the topic and move on to other things. Yeah, I, I think both of you make excellent points. Um, one of the things, the IPCC, it's sort of hard to change what they're doing. And there are other right. critiques of what they're doing as well. And I think this would be more of a complementary thing. And to their credit, by the way, they do release what are called emergency reports. So right. there was an emergency report in 2018 reminding the world that we need to stay below one and a half degrees Celsius. Side note, we're going to pass one and a half degrees in the next couple of years. Um, and oh. then in 2019, there were a couple of additional reports in terms of land use and oceans. And here's another example of something. So Hurricane Dorian that hit the Bahamas, again, invented a completely new category of hurricane. Um, this was a category six with 185 mile per hour or in uh, non-imperial terms, about 300 kilometers an hour winds uh, okay. were in that hurricane. And this is a new category and it's supposed to only be happening once in 100 years. And that report was saying you can expect that type of thing to happen almost on a yearly basis in the business as usual um, trajectory. And we haven't even spoken about what that means. So, yeah. Wow. Most of us, I would think, were aware of the, the devastation of this particular hurricane and we're aware of the impact that it had, of course, I didn't hear about these predictions that this level of disaster would be more frequent. That is, I think, the piece that doesn't quite hit most average folks. Yeah, and even I've seen headlines that kind of make vague reference to that. But I think even then, it's not with a level of detail or a level of certainty in the way it's being reported that I think the average person can really connect with. Yeah, and can really grab onto. And, and really think like, oh, so this is something that will in our lifetimes be happening on a yearly basis. I don't think that's quite breaking through yet. And this is probably something that we should investigate more deeply in a future episode. Why is 
that type of information not making it out to everyone in a way that we collectively understand. I think part of it is also it's just going to be socially disruptive because then it makes you ask the question, does it even make sense to rebuild? And if it doesn't make sense to rebuild, where are those people going to go? Who's going to take them in? Who shoulders that cost? Mm -hmm. And these are really difficult questions that people don't want to address. To go, yeah. Right? And then, and then also there are people that like, they don't want to move. Like that's their life. They, they've spent their mm -hmm. entire time there. And so I think people try to avoid the topic more so because there are so many difficult ones. Now, that said, there are some scientists that have come out this past year um, with the case for managed retreat, they called it, which is recognized that certain areas are going to become uninhabitable and move people out. Mm. Yeah, so it does seem like there has been an alarming increase in the last few years of tragic events happening all over the world in various ways that connect with climate change or the climate crisis in some fashion. And because of the way our news cycle works, I don't know if we're always stepping back and seeing the bigger picture of how all of these events connect with each other, because we kind of just take in each horrible thing that happens as its own one compartmentalized thing. Well, it's very reactionary. It's not like analytical. Yeah. So maybe, Ali, if you want to kind of give us a little summary of what we've been seeing over the last few years, that might help to kind of chalk it all up on the board. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess there are two aspects to what we're talking about here. Um, in, in the past several years, there's been a new branch of science that has emerged called attribution science. And this is um, once we observe a phenomena. So a phenomena here is like a wildfire or a flood or something like that. How much of that can we actually attribute, right? Hence attribution science to human activity and to global heating. And uh, this science is actually pretty robust and it shows um, we are having a significant impact on what's happening here. Um, and then the other part of that is a lot of these examples that I'm going to list um, are actually going to be direct evidence of that theme of faster and sooner than expected. Um, so over the past several years, and this has made it into the news, we've been seeing astounding wildfires all across the world. In North America, typically in the West, but also here in Ontario. Um, in Australia, if you recall, where over several billion animals died um, in that wildfire. Um, and in the United States, the, again, the, how it's an example of sooner and faster these gigafires, uh, so before we used to call them megafires, <laughs> mega is like a million, giga is a billion. These gigafires weren't again supposed to happen until 2050, but they happened uh, last year. Um, so they're, they're, they're happening 20 or 30 years sooner than expected. Yikes. Um, I already spoke a little bit about the Arctic permafrost melting 70 years sooner. Basically that we turned it from permafrost to temp frost. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's still it's still permafrost, but it, it, the depth of it is shrinking. So um, okay. it, it would go down several meters and now it's shrinking and it's going to become to the point where it is tempafrost. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and then uh, spoke a little bit about Greenland melting and the great glaciers. And I can put references to the scientific papers in the show notes if anyone's interested. Um, other things that we've seen are oceans are actually warming faster and sooner than expected. We're seeing ocean acidification. So this is the amount of acidification in the ocean that is directly related to the amount of carbon dioxide in the ocean, which is related, which is the primary driver of the global heating. It's that carbon dioxide is one of the greenhouse gases that cause uh, global heating. Uh, we spoke about the scale of the hurricanes that are hitting. 
Um, and then again, most recently in the news, the heat waves. The heat waves that happened this summer, several hundred people died in North America, um, unprecedented. Um, that's another unfortunately example of both sooner and faster than expected. I'm going to read you some quotes from some of the uh, scientists that were discussing what happened. Um, the first quote is going to be by Larry O'Neill. He's an associate professor at Oregon State University, and he's a climatologist. Um, he's Oregon State climatologist. And the projected temperatures, I'm quoting now from an NBC News article, the projected temperatures for this week were so unusually high, between 115 and 120 degrees Fahrenheit, that's about over 40 degrees Celsius, across parts of the Pacific Northwest, that O'Neill felt something must be off. Quoting him, the prediction seemed completely outlandish. They were so crazy, insane, that professional forecasters and people like myself thought something must be wrong with the models. As it turned out, the forecasters were right. And what O'Neill said further is, we see evidence of climate change in the data already. But in the Pacific Northwest, we thought maybe by the middle of the century is when we would start to see really substantial and impactful events. But we're seeing those now. And here's another uh, climatologist. This is now Washington State's climatologist. This is Nicholas Bond. He's a research scientist at the University of Washington. And this is what he said, quoting, The magnitude by which records are being broken, not by a degree or so, but by five degrees, and in some cases more, is really stunning. I didn't really expect anything like this until further into the future. So these are just a couple of examples of faster and sooner than expected. Um, that's happening all around us. And now think about that, right? That heat wave happened in the summer of 2021. And we had the IPCC report come out in October 2021 based off of computer simulations that were being run in 2019. So this phenomena, the fact that we got this heat wave that happened 20 to 30 years sooner, obviously didn't make it into that report. And so, and it didn't make it into those models. It didn't make it into those predictions. Um, and so this is a, a type of phenomenon. And of course, it's not as simple as saying, okay, we see it now, and therefore it means those temperatures in the report are off by one degree, right? It's it's a lot more work to take this one instance that we have now observed in the real world and translate that into updated pred predictions. What it does tell us, though, is that those predictions are likely off, and they tell us the direction that they're off. They're likely off in terms of things are going to happen, trademark, faster than expected, <laughs> sooner than expected. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for providing that admittedly quite grim timeline. Yeah. Um, I think that does help, though, to summarize the things that a lot of us have observed and things that have made it into the headlines just from 2019 to the present. But to hear it all together, it really does drive home the idea that this is now a much bigger trend than any one single event. One, one last thing on that, and there's a really nice um, quote, because uh, we're, we're recording this in Toronto, and Ontario, we pretty much haven't seen the impact firsthand. We had a little bit of a warm summer, but like that's, we have warm summers every occasionally, right? And there's this really brilliant quote from uh, the science fiction writer, or the writer, William Gibson, and he says, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. Hmm. Climate crisis is here, it's just unevenly distributed. We're not seeing the firsthand impacts, but there are people around the world. And part of that, though, how it relates to our project is it's hard to internalize how severe it is if you don't live it yourself. 
And how do we get over that hump? That's a very important question that we're going to need to keep asking. Let's talk a little bit about next steps with this project. I think maybe each of us have some priorities that we're already starting to set as far as the topics that we want to investigate and the aspects of the climate crisis that we want to learn how to communicate about. So for me, I find the cognitive dissonance aspect of this particularly troublesome, and it's something that I want to learn more about as far as the psychology of how people are able to sometimes know that climate change is a crisis, but that acting on that information or even supporting others who do act is still a barrier. And you know what? There in, uh, I didn't talk about this, but in the summer of 2019, there were crazy floods in the United States in the farm country. Um, we're talking about Iowa, uh, places like that. And CBS actually had a really interesting mini documentary. It was like maybe a 20 minute video segment on these floods. And they were talking to these farmers who had their fields under meters of water. And the cognitive dissonance was astounding. They couldn't bring themselves to say this was climate change. Many of the people they spoke to couldn't bring themselves to say this was climate. They would say, mm -hmm. yeah, we see things are changing with the climate, but they <laughs> couldn't put the words climate change together in a single sentence. And there were also U.S. Army engineers that they were interviewing who were building the levees that are supporting, and they still couldn't say it themselves. The, the cognizant dissonance in that video was palpable, and it was astounding and also disappointing. And we saw something similar, in some ways the precise opposite of that, happen in Canada. And I think this was either in summer 2020 or summer 2019. I can't remember for certain. It was very recently that there were droughts in the Canadian prairies that were affecting, I think, grain production and, and agriculture there. And it was a widespread problem that a lot of people were experiencing head on. And yet it still seemed like the way this was being reported on, they couldn't quite say out loud that this is in some way connected with anything ha having to do with climate. And it's a political third rail in that part of the country, because anytime there's a discussion in Canada about the climate crisis, inevitably it leads to our fossil fuel industry. And so people look at that as, well, if we were to change our way of doing business here, if we were to not have as big of a fossil fuel industry as we have, or to not have a fossil fuel industry, people look at the economic impacts of that. But then they don't connect that with even other industries within the same country. So even if someone just wanted out of their own self-interest to look at the economic impacts of this, it's as if one part of the country is not connected to another part of the country right next door. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, here's a clip from CBS and Originals documentary, A Climate Reckoning in the Heartland. One of the things I'm really interested in is the imagination of people. What is the world that we're aiming for? And if you think about sort of the imaginations of the future, we're always getting apocalypse scenarios. And what I'd really like is to get and articulate concretely what a positive solution to the climate crisis would be. 
I think that would be something I would like to learn more about. How do different people view us coming out of this? So one thing I would like to research is sort of compiling a lot of recent or semi-recent systemic changes that have been made in very specific regions and places that had a big impact and have helped make positive change um, in terms of climate. And just, you know, kind of having an ongoing list of these things so that everybody out there can maybe think about how we can apply those to our cities, our regions, our countries, and maybe push for our, our leadership to adopt them as well. Another thing that would be really interesting is to look at how we got to where we are today. And I don't just mean in terms of climate specifically, although obviously the history of fossil fuel extraction and the way that we have constructed the systems that are causing the harm is super important. But even in terms of other things that have happened in society that we now take for granted as just completely normalized, like this is the only way to do things, this is the only way to live, and are there historical examples, and I know that there are, of times in the not-too-distant past where we did things a completely different way? I mean, I've seen even in a little bit of research so far that the average size of a suburban home has doubled since the 1950s. The amount of meat that people consume on average in North America has doubled or tripled since the uh, pre-World War II era. And if I'm able to find sources for those specific stats, I'll put them in the show notes. Otherwise, those will be things that I'm going to research more deeply later on to try to compile uh, some information about that. But I think it's interesting to look back in addition to looking forward and say, okay, have we always done things this way? And then do we always need to do things this way? And to your point, Ali, what is a projected future that we can imagine that would be a lot better? And as you were talking about that, it reminded me of one other thing that I do want to learn a little bit more about. Um, something that uh, a number of different um, scientists and other people who have been paying attention to this are talking about. We're actually facing what's called a triple threat, where climate is only one head of this hydra. Uh, the other two heads are biodiversity loss and also pollution or um, food insecurity. Now this relates to our theme of climate is everything, but I would really like to have us, uh, I would really like for us to explore a little bit more the links between these and the causal factors between those. Because I think when, especially when we talk about solutions to climate, a lot of people focus too narrowly on the technical, oh, we gotta take CO2 out. And they're not taking a look at how it's those cultural things that you were talking about, Aaron, that lead to that, accompanying biodiversity loss. And in fact, in many ways, climate is more of a symptom of that more fundamental sort of cultural angle that we're on, this, this path of consumption and destruction that our dominant global society is on. All right. So on that optimistic note, <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that we're going to do is a news update. So this is a part of our show where we're going to look at a few recent news headlines, some positive, some negative, that give us a bit of a sense of how this crisis is evolving and some of the things that as a society we're doing or failing to do to respond to it. So 
We'll each bring a few different stories to each episode and kind of round table them and go through some examples. So I'm going to kick us off with a, with a positive one because I think uh, the faster than expected, sooner than expected is pretty daunting. So here's one positive trend that I caught in a headline, how a lack of insurance is a growing threat to the oil sands. And I'll post a link in the show notes. Now, of course, we can't say this without analyzing the headline, a growing threat to the oil sands positions this as if that's a bad thing that the oil sands would be threatened. But that aside, uh, the content is actually very positive. Um, it seems that approximately half of all of the insurance companies that have historically been backing tar sands projects here in Canada are now pulling out. So they're now not willing to insure or underwrite these projects, whether it's an extraction development, a pipeline, et cetera. If I recall correctly, it's a drop from about 40 companies to about 20 companies. And that has unfolded in just the last couple of years. As we may see, when insurance companies are not willing to back these projects, these projects are less likely to happen. Now, I did read that some of the biggest fossil fuel companies are at a scale financially where they can basically insure themselves. And so the biggest players in the industry may not be immediately affected, but it may substantially reduce the number of smaller and medium-sized companies that are involved in oil and gas production. That's a great story. And it is a little bit of cause for uh, optimism in the sense that there, there are a lot of institutions that are understanding this. I just want to to build on that. Like these are not hippie institutions. They're not left wing institutions. The International Energy Agency um, and the organization, the IEA, and then the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. This is the Rich Country Club, the OECD. Uh, both of these organizations are now climate aware. And the IEA has changed their tune in saying we must leave oil in the ground. This is, the, this is like one of the pro-oil outfits for the past mm. several decades. And they've come out and said, we have to leave oil in the ground. So that's a positive. The flip side of Canada says, no, we must take the oil out. Trudeau is saying, yes, we must take the oil out. Biden, even though he spoke so much at COP26, is um, auctioning off oil licenses um, in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's a lot of doublespeak coming from our leaders and our politicians, but those organizations are speaking out. And the OECD, they had a conference in 2019, a three-day symposium on can we avoid systemic collapse? Uh, the too long uh, didn't watch version is about half of the scientists they brought in said no, and half mm. of them said yes. But then they were talking about, well, how do we get politicians to listen? Um, and they were, they were speaking frankly about different strategies. And one of those relevant to us is like they need they were talking about we need to target their kids. Now, let me be clear. They're not talking about like any type of violent target. They're talking about messaging because mm -hmm. it's those kids that are going to go and talk to their parents who are the decision makers. And, and so but these are frank conversations that these groups are having. Uh, Mark Carney, he, he used to be the um, uh, head of uh, the Bank of Canada and then the Bank of England. Um, he's trying to come up with ways to have capitalism uh, save itself. By addressing climate appropriately. And again, these are like hard-nosed uh, hyper-capitalists who are, who are making these judgments. So I'd like to share a couple of positive headlines. Um, this first one is from CNBC.com. 
And the headline itself is renewables grew at faster rate in two decades last year, IEA says in new report. So it's basically just discussing how renewable energy sources grew at the fastest rate in two decades during 2020. So there is a shift in, you know, the public's desire to get on board with renewable energy. And that is really obviously quite exciting. Um, But an interesting sort of counter to that is um, another headline that um, oil companies are blaming clean energy transition for market volatility. So essentially, when people are complaining about gas prices, uh, the oil companies are stepping in and saying, well, that's because of renewables. (laughs) So it's pretty obnoxious. So executives from oil companies, including Saudi Aramco, the world's biggest oil producer, and U.S. oil giants like ExxonMobil and Chevron are publicly uh, describing the shift towards clean energy alternatives as deeply flawed. So they're trying to put bad PR out there about uh, clean energy. And I think it's important to emphasize here, the International Energy Agency, I think this is important to emphasize, like they're calling for fossil fuels to remain part of the energy mix for years to come. Yet the International Energy Agency is saying oil and gas must be left in the ground. So they are being completely (laughs) anti-science, these oil and gas companies, and they are putting uh, most life on earth at risk. Wow. And I mean, they're going to do that. That's pretty predictable that that's how oil and gas companies would behave. I think the important thing is that we as a citizenry and our public representatives challenge those propagandistic messages with the important questions about whether those types of companies that are obviously going to operate in their own self-interest deserve a seat at the table in this kind of conversation. But it does sound like if renewables are coming out faster than expected and sooner than expected, then that's actually a positive spin on that same theme. Right. One extra positive little story that I'll tack on is this announcement of Ford coming out with a fully electric F-150. Now, why is this relevant? Well, the Ford F-150 is the best-selling vehicle in the United States. It's also a vehicle that is classically a very gas-guzzling type of vehicle and emblematic of our system of consumption. And it's also a vehicle that perhaps traditionally doesn't necessarily appeal to the same demographics of people who may be early adopters of electric cars. So... I feel like a lot of the public debate that we're seeing on electric cars is around Teslas and around small vehicles and luxury vehicles and talking about electric cars as if it's kind of like an urban yuppie niche sort of thing. So an electric Ford F-150 would be an instant mainstreaming of electric vehicles. And Electric vehicles in and of themselves are probably not going to do much to save us, but symbolically, it's going to bring a lot of new people into a conversation about renewables and where we get our energy and our whole system and the choices we make. Yeah. Well, I mean, sorry. And just to add to that, like recently it was reported that 
the reservations for this new vehicle, the Ford F-150 Lightning electric truck, it like, according to this one article, it surpassed 160,000. So there is that interest. It's not just that they released it. It is that there is interest in it. So it's true. It's like, it seems like the public is shifting what they want and that there is public support for all of this. It's just that the overall messages need to get out to the public and they need to be, you know, they need to stop getting propaganda from big oil and other uh, forces. And on, on this point, though, it also comes back to I do want to reiterate that technology will not be the solution. Yeah. And I, I can already anticipate some of the people saying, well, green energy, there are issues with how solar panels are created or electric vehicles. There are issues with how they're also generated. And those are actually all true and valid. And that just speaks to the fact that these are not we're not only going to have a technical solution. These technologies are going to be part of any solution because they are cleaner and long term in many ways better than what exists, but they cannot be the solution. And, and actually, I was I didn't know that the Ford F-Series was the best selling car in the US. So as Aaron mentioned <laughs> that, I just looked it up and of the top 10 best selling vehicles in the US, the top three are pickup trucks and the fourth and fifth one are SUVs. So uh, the top five out of the top 10 are like the biggest gas guzzlers there are. And it's by a wide margin. Um, so according to this car driver, car and driver report, about half a million Ford F-Series were sold in uh, 2021. And the highest sedan, the Toyota Camry, was 256. So about half as many sedans were sold as SUVs. And to me, this speaks to it's not just technology, though. It's also we need to change cultural patterns. And I do mm -hmm. want to be clear, we're not talking about people not driving. We're not talking about taking things away. We're talking about shifting patterns of behaviors so that we're more um, cognizant and more selective about when we use technology to solve the problems that we're facing. So I'll talk about, I, I'm often the harbinger of bad news, um, so, but I'll talk a little bit about some of the bad news. Um, so the idea behind this, by the way, is like we were going to have... Uh, topical news. Uh, but because we're not quite sure when this episode is going to get released, I thought what I, we, I would do is I would just review some of the top stories from 2021. But that said, one of the unfortunate things, though, is you can open up the news pretty much any day and you can find a couple of negative climate stories from today. So right now we're recording on December 11, 2021, and I just opened up the news and here's some lowlights, I guess. Um, what do we have? Uh, so at least 70 dead as tornadoes rip across central and southern United States. Um, Kentucky was hit hardest as four tornadoes, including a massive storm, devastated a town and collapsed a factory building. This also may have been the first ever tornado that spanned four states simultaneously. Wow. Yeah, this is the category of megastorms that are unfortunately going to be more frequent as a result of our climate crisis and global heating. What are some other examples? There was a report that came out um, yesterday by Canadian researchers that said that the average Canadian is likely going to spend over $1,000 a year more on food due to rising prices. Now, this is an interesting example of poor reporting. Um, the CBC reported on this and they said, well, why? And the reasons they gave was COVID uh, because of disruptions to supply chain. Nowhere in the article did they mention the flooding in BC that knocked out highways, that knocked out, uh, that disrupted Canada's biggest port in Vancouver, 
that would have disrupted these um, supply chains. And so that exercise was left for the reader. <laughs> and so this is something that we need to call our media a little bit more on. They often don't report the connection between climate and these things that are happening. It's very odd. It feels like almost like the climate crisis has a really good PR person. <laughs> it does. It does. Like yeah. it's just it manages to stay out of the conversation in the weirdest way possible. It's almost like the the yeah, the PR person for the climate crisis is just you know so you're saying like if the climate crisis was some sort of like malevolent entity yes yes so this is this this would be an interesting and I, I'm sure there's a researcher doing this but to to build on this and this could be an exercise for our listeners if you're so inclined um here are some of the here are some of the major news stories from 2021 flooding this happened globally we had floods in Europe did you know about the floods in Europe think to yourself. Uh, we had crazy floods in China. Did you know about the floods in China? We had crazy floods in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. Does your average person, we, we you would have heard about the floods in BC, probably if of you're course, Canadian. Yes. Now go in, and if you have the um, sort of wherewithal, go and read some of those articles and see, did they mention climate in any of those articles? And if they did, how many of those articles did they mention climate? And then think, well, why? Why are they not? And And so what you'll find is typically... And I did this, um, not for all of these, but let's say the Canadian ones. About one in, uh, actually, I'm not going to say the exact number because I don't have that available, but every once in a while they do. And so this is sort of your cover at your ass. I'm not entirely sure why they do it like this. And to bring to, bring to your point, I think it's uh, the PR. It's like the oil companies and the invested um, economic interests that are blocking this easy dissemination, where it's, again, an exercise left to the reader to connect it to climate. Um, uh, the other, some of the other big news stories from 2021 that were climate related heat waves. We spoke about that a little bit mm -hmm. earlier, um, in today's episode, wildfires. Again, we probably heard about the ones in, um, North America. Did you know about the ones in Greece and Turkey that were terrifying? Uh, and the ones in Siberia, uh, that have been ongoing for the past several years where they go dormant in the winter. Uh, they're still smoldering under the snow and then they come back. They're called these zombie fires that come back. Look it up. Um, and then just continued biodiversity loss. Um, it looks increasingly likely that we're going to lose the Amazon and it's going to turn into a savanna in our lifetimes. Mm. Um, there are the new reports on that. Ocean degradation in 2021. Um, and then there's other interesting ones. We're seeing um, a lot more talk about geoengineering. Um, so Amazon is now funding a Mr. Burns style geoengineering project. Uh, this is the, oh, uh, an idea no. for global dimming. Yeah. And so the idea is, oh, well, in the past, when a volcano has gone up and it's thrown up all these particulates in the atmosphere, it has dimmed the amount of sunlight reaching Earth. And if you dim the sun by just 1%, we, get, we can shave off one or two degrees. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the issue is we don't know what the long-term effect of reduced sunlight is on plants. We don't know what the long-term effect of reduced sunlight is on anything. <laughs> we know the short-term effect is reduced sun. And this is the classic example of, oh, we have, uh, and the Simpsons had a great episode on this in Australia, right? Oh, we have a, a rabbit problem. Okay, let's bring in snakes. Oh, shit, now we have a snake problem. Let's bring in badgers. And you're just <laughs> building this house of cards of technological band-aids, right? These are band-aids. Right. If that technological society that is dimming the atmosphere falls apart, all of a sudden, not only do we have that backed up warming, we have additional warming that's going to happen like that. Right. I snapped my fingers if you didn't pick that up. 
And then, <laughs> I mean, I'm not an expert, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that reducing the amount of sunlight that hits the earth is going to have the opposite effect that you want when it comes to, let's say, effective use of solar panels as a source of electricity. Oh, wow. Or, yeah. Or growing food when yeah. we know that there's potential for food scarcity. Well, and just general well-being of human life as well. Like if you reduce the amount of vitamin D coming to Yeah. The thing is we don't know the these earth. things, so they're yeah. they're studying them at yeah, least. They're studying them. <laughs> but this is a classic example of a first order solution. So what is the first order? Oh, we're heating. Uh sun is directly related to heat. So if we reduce the sun, we reduce the heat without thinking about the second order and third order, right? The third order is an example. So the second order is what, we're talk what you just said, right? What is the impact mm -hmm. on food? What is the impact on um, our, our health? Third order could be that when people don't see enough sun, violence goes up because their mood is bad. You know what I mean? And so like we're really, really bad as species at thinking about second order, let alone third order effects. Mm -hmm. And we see this all the time. And then the other part that where this is problematic is it ignores the triple threat. We are in a biodiversity crisis as well. And so by focusing on a technical solution for climate, you've, put a, you've maybe put a Band-Aid on temperature. And again, dimming the sun would basically buy us 10 years. That's all it does. It just buys us time to actually mm. find a proper solution. And it does nothing about biodiversity loss or pollution. Yikes. Yeah. And then the other two um, important stories, and I'll, I'll close this off. So the Met Office, which is the National Weather Service for the United Kingdom, put out a report saying, you know what, we're going to hit plus 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so I, I, should, I, I guess we need to provide a little bit of background. When people talk about um, increased temperature, they're typically comparing us to pre-industrial society. Um, it used to be when we first started talking about it, the temperature at 1750. Now, the temperature records at 1750 are a little bit sketchy. Uh, because we didn't really have the technology and the record keeping. Um, but that is typically why 1750, that's taken as pre-industrialization. That's basically before steam power took over and we have the industrial revolution starting in the UK and then spreading throughout the world. Um, weather records became a lot more reliable in the late 1800s, but in that time we already would have experienced a little bit of warming. But today, typically, um, the 1850 to up until 1900, um, some 30 year span within that, it's either 1815 to 1880 or 1870 to 1900 is used as the reference point for pre-industrial temperature. And so when people say plus one and a half degrees Celsius, they're also comparing a 30 year rolling average to that reference point. So even and so this is the point that the Met was making is that sometime in 20 in, in the 2020s, we're going to surpass plus one and a half degrees in a given year. Now, this is both a plus and a negative. Why do you take a rolling 30 year average? Because we have natural variability in the weather, right? And so there's this distinction between weather and climate. And by taking a rolling uh, multi-year average, then you can iron out some of the natural variation. The flip side, though, is a lot of the effects that we talk about that happen at certain temperatures are going to happen at that temperature. Right. And so scientists have been talking that one and a half degrees Celsius, we need to keep temperatures well below one and a half to two degrees Celsius to avoid a lot of the more cataclysmic effects of climate. And the Met came out this year and said, we are going to surpass it in at least one of these years. Now, the problem, the problem, uh, the, the sort of corollary or the side effect of that is that officially we won't surpass it because we're looking back 30 years and taking that average. And so to give you a reference point for everyone, we're somewhere between 1 to 1.2 degrees 
Celsius. And over the past little while, we've been averaging about plus 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade. But likely that rate is going to increase because we've been increasing the amount of greenhouse gases we're putting into atmosphere. The other big news that I'll wrap up my segment for news um, from 2021 was uh, COP, COP26, Congress of Parties 26. Um, there was actually supposed to be one last year, but it was canceled in Chile as a result of COVID. And this year, um, it was held in Glasgow, uh, Glasgow, Scotland, um, where a lot of people from all across the world flew. Uh, the oil and gas industry had the largest contingent of all the people there, and a lot of environmentalists were not allowed in. What? <laughs> yeah, crazy, crazy. That was not reported on much. No. no. I certainly didn't think that... Again, the- it's that PR person that is working for climate change. Yeah, I, I did hear the crisis. I did hear the bit about some activists so not weird. being allowed in, but I did not hear the bit about the oil and gas industry getting a voice at that conference. Yeah. Oh so, man, there's so much being left out. Like there's so much it's it's a very odd phenomenon. And like this this is what is really jumping out at me during this conversation is that the glaring details that are really like just swept under the rug and that most people, yeah, have no clue about. It's it's just very, very weird. It's also about framing. So there's a lot yeah. of in, a lot of people are like follow the money and that does play a big role. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of talk about divesting from uh, basically um, human and life-killing industries and economic activity. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's be frank about it. At this point, the oil and gas industry is destroying life on Earth and putting all life on Earth at risk. That's what they're doing. And so there's talk about divesting from it. And when you frame mm-hmm. it like that, right? And so my alma mater, University of Toronto, uh, the Globe and Mail, and I think the CBC, these are Canadian news publications, outlets, um, reported by 2030, the United uh, U of T um, fund is going to divest from the fossil fuel industry. And this was presented as good news. But like, why 2030? The, the real framing is they're not going to be doing that until 2030. So just mm-hmm. think about that one bit of news. It was presented mm-hmm. as good news. It's bad news. There's no reason they cannot divest on a faster timeline. Okay, maybe they can't do it in like tomorrow. They could do right. it. They could come up with a six month or year long plan, right? When you talk about the stakes at risk here, there is no excuse for 2030. And it's, it, it is egregious that the CBC and the Globe and Mail reported uncritically that this was good news 2030. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. You know, to me, that just speaks to like the leadership that is it like, oh, is it that long a timeline? Because the people that will be in power by then will be long retired and they don't have to like, you know, think about it. And they aren't impacted financially by that decision. It's the interests, you know, obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this this brings us to sort of one of the main takeaways from COP26. And thankfully, there are a number of scientists. These are the people that actually were a large part of the contribution, and this is, sorry, a phrase that we're going to hear a lot, we've been hearing a lot, and you're going to hear it more, net zero 2050. What does that mm-hmm. mean? What does that mean? So the, the primary driver of our crisis is that we discovered a set of um, resources, uh, starting with coal and now oil and natural gas, that are really efficient at storing energy. And they've unlocked the steam engine and cars and flying and all these things that are in many ways good too right? 
Um, the the issue is though are human activity, and so the, there's these things are being released naturally into the world all the time, and there's this idea of sinks and sources, and so for and it, it's true it's also been in flux and it will continue to be in flux even without human um, intervention for millions of years. This is just the way the world is, um, and you'll actually hear climate deniers say, "Oh, the climate's always changing." The issue is. Mm -hmm. We're changing it, and we're changing it in timescales that have never been seen before. The type of temperature increase that we're going to witness this decade, this century, would typically take thousands, if not tens of thousands of yeah. years. So when people talk about, oh yeah, it changed all the time, yeah, it would have changed on the order of a thousand or ten thousand or a million years, not on the order of a hundred years. And that's the problem, or that's one of the big problems. And so when people talk about net zero, what they're talking about is the amount that humans have been inputting into the atmosphere emitting were about 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide. Or another thing they usually report is something called carbon dioxide equivalent, because carbon dioxide is not the only greenhouse gas. There's all the other things like methane and nitrous oxide and a couple others, and say so they roll them all up into something called CO2e carbon dioxide equivalent. We emit about 40 gigatons a year. And so what they're saying is we're going to go to net zero by 2050, which means we're going to come up, and this is the key point, we're going to invent technologies that do not exist today and roll them up at scales that we can barely even imagine to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to allow us to continue to emit carbon dioxide. Now, in, in some level, this makes sense too, because it's hard for us to imagine today not emitting any carbon dioxide due to human activity. But it's also used as this thing to punt decisions because it's relying on technologies that do not exist. This is the official world plan. And if you go and read the scientific literature, what is now our official world plan was supposed to be the backup to the backup plan five years ago, 10 years ago. It's astounding. And that was the outcome from COP2026, that some of the major countries are committed. And, and to be clear, China has not yet committed. They're 2060. Uh, Russia is not even talking about net zero. Uh, and even though some of the West is talking about net zero 2050, and, and to some, uh, to the credit of some European countries, they're now aiming for 2040, um, the climate policies, like the policies that they've committed to, let alone what's actually been implemented, are not on track for 2050. But, so that's the outcome of COP26. Uh, okay. Wow. So I think that uh, this will segue well into what we're going to talk about in the next episode. So. On that note, I feel like, yes, we hear a lot about the concept of net zero, and I've seen a lot of references to net zero by 2050. And a lot of the messaging coming from mainstream sources that are claiming to care about the climate crisis are presenting that as the be-all and end-all of how we're going to get our way out of this. And so that's definitely an important thing for us to talk about in greater depth. So maybe let's talk briefly about what we're going to do in the coming few episodes, uh, because it seems like this question of will technology save us and this concept of net zero is something really important to investigate. So the other one we're talking about and actually came up in today's call where there were a couple of things that we spoke about and we were all like, well, why didn't I know about that? Yeah, Bryn, you asked a lot about why yeah. don't we know about this? Yeah. So uh, we're, we're considering, and right now this is you looking behind the scenes at our process, our next episode, our, we're, and stay tuned, it's going to be, why don't I know about this? Or uh, will technology save us? And so some, some of the benefits of that is um, the immediate 
you've heard all this bad news and the immediate solution is I want a solution. And so technology is part of the solution. Let's be clear, technology will always be part of the solution, but it will not be the solution. So that's a sneak preview of sort of where we'll end up with that topic. <laughs> and then the other part of it, though, is as well, well, why don't why, why don't I know about all of this? And both of those sort of work well together. And we're trying to figure out what the best route would be to go in that exploration. So on that note, thank you for listening to our first ever episode of Climate Change is Everything. And we look forward to digging into more topics in future episodes. Please subscribe to the show, like it, share it, tell other people about it. Follow it, you know, follow it on all the things. And with that, thanks for being part of our journey. And we look forward to learning with you. Or We Could Change is hosted by Bryn, Aaron, and Ali with audio production by me, Eckhart. Please help us grow by leaving us a review and recommending us to your friends and family.